Good morning, church. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. You can follow along in your handout or on the screen above me. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Thank you, Michael. Happy New Year, everyone, if I haven't been able to say it to you already. I have to be completely honest with you. I love this time of year. I do. I love it. I love resolutions. I love the endless possibilities. But I have to be totally honest with you, and my wife can, can testify to this. If I kept all of my resolutions, right now I would be running marathons, dunking basketballs, benching 400 pounds, speaking in at least five different languages, independently wealthy, drinking less coffee and drinking more water. Okay. This morning I woke up and had way too much coffee. Just to give you a start to my year, I mean, you, you, you could insert more spiritual things. I understand that, right? I'm going to read my Bible every day, memorize large portions of Scripture, have multiple quiet times. I'm going to talk to more people about Jesus, attend, worship regularly more. It's just more, more, more. The possibilities are endless, right? And yet, despite all these targets that I want to aim at, all these things I want to achieve in life and the things that I'd, I'd want to hit, right? Why I haven't I? There's probably a bunch of reasons, right, that we don't have time to go through today. But for one, you know, I can overestimate what can be accomplished in a year and underestimate what can be accomplished in five years, right? Or, you know, bad habits are always, and good habits always have a, a trade-off, right? Bad habits are short-term pleasure with long-term pain, right, where, where your good habits are long-term pleasure but short-term pain. And so which one do you kind of want to trade? I, I understand this, no simplification. Much like kind of the, the business aphorism that this, the, the results you're getting in your life right now are a product of your system. And that your system of life, of way of living, is perfectly designed to produce the results that you're seeing. Right? We can go endlessly through all of these things with, uh, that, that help us get into the mindset of, of how to change. And look, if there's a newsletter about habits, if there's a course on behavior change and goal setting, I've probably taken it. I've probably listened to it. I, I love it. I'll be honest with you. I love it. Okay. But I'll also be honest with you that I'm not quite seeing the results I'd want to see, despite my love for all these things, right? And so you could then say, well, part of this is the result of not understanding the long-term consequences. So, you know, if you have that health scare, 
You go and you get the results from a, a checkup. And then you immediately think, oh, here's what this could lead to. That starts to make changes in your life. But sometimes, some of us have had that and it didn't stick, right? And some of us have had it, or maybe you have a friend, or maybe this is you, and the behavior did stick. You're like, what was the difference? What changed? Obviously, it was something about your system that changed, but it's like, why? Why did that change? As questions that, that bugged me. And then we now come to a text in the Gospel of Mark that's actually going to talk about this, that's going to talk about the long-term things that we're aiming at in life. Because, well, Jesus gets pretty long-term because he's going to start talking about the end of the world here now. And you may be thinking, well, all this about resolutions, all this about behavior change, about bringing in a, a new you with a new life, right? How, why would we talk about Mark 13 this morning? Well, you could say that, well, we preach through books of the Bible so that we don't skip hard things like this and we have to really feel the full weight of biblical force, right? And if you know anything about Mark 13, it kind of gets into apocalyptic prophecies that we'll walk through in a minute, right? But here's the thing. In 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ. No, I didn't add all those up. There's math geeks who do a really good job of tallying these things and putting metrics, and they add it up for us, and I can just look it up easily. But that means basically one in every 13 verses in the New Testament is about the end of the world. Is about Jesus coming back again. And so, this is a foundational piece, right, of all of Christian living. This is why it's in some of our oldest creeds, like the Apostles' Creed. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So what we believe about the end of the world actually is informing, whether you're conscious of it or not, is informing how you're living today. How you spend your money, how you spend your time, what you think about work and your relationships, in many ways is all tied to what you think you're aiming at in this life. What's the target you're trying to hit? What is that end goal? And Jesus is going to lay some of that out. So we're going to see two things here. All right. What is Jesus saying in Mark 13? Because it's a really hard chapter that a lot of of brings a lot of different perspectives, right, that I'll try and give you kind of an easy course to navigate through. But ultimately, like, what is Jesus saying? What's this target that he's giving us to aim at? What is he talking about when we look at words like abomination of desolation, okay? I could have skipped it, but we're not. We're not going to skip it today. We're going to get into it. So what's what's all of this about? We're not going to say everything that the Bible has to say about the end of the world, but we'll at least talk about Jesus' highlights here, okay? And then the second thing that we'll get into then, once we kind of break down, look at what is Jesus saying, we'll then look at how on earth does that help any of us? Because maybe right now you're thinking, oh, finally, apocalypse, let's do this. I'm so glad it was Family Worship Sunday, Mom. I, I want to be here for this one, okay? Or maybe you're thinking, I was, you know how up late I was up last night? And you're going to walk me through an intense, long, hard Bible study through Mark 13? I'll, I'll try and, and be sympathetic to you and encouraging to the ones who are excited. Right? We'll, we'll try and navigate it together. But ultimately, we will get to how does any of that help us for today? Because Jesus isn't just pontificating 
for no reason, right? They didn't spend all this hard time and effort to record Jesus' words so that it would mean nothing for us. That it actually is going to help us. And if anything, it's going to help us in this new year take aim at the things that we should take aim at in this life. So, with the, those two things before us, what is Jesus saying and how is it going to help us? All right, hopefully you have one of two things, or maybe both. All right, hopefully you have the handout that you will actually find in your worship program. Now, this is new. This is so new that more than one of you actually came up to me and was like, hey, did you give me the wrong program? I think your notes were in here. No, those notes are for you. I promise. They look very similar to my notes, yes, but those notes are for you, all right? And then the other thing is that if you are one of our middle schoolers, right, who are here for Family Worship Sunday and didn't grab a clipboard, you can grab a clipboard, all right? So because I love the handouts, I love the pictures or things that you guys draw, Right now, based off some of the pictures that were drawn last Sunday, I'm pretty sure Pastor Jeff talked about Jesus, Mary, Pokemon, and dragons. That was all part of the sermon. Okay, this week I might help you out on the dragon part, right? I don't know if we'll get into that, but, you know, I, I'm excited always to see the, the, the great things that you guys record. So let's go ahead. Let's get into it. If you have a Bible, you can open to Mark 13. Otherwise, I'll just try and, and read through it for us here. Hit some of the different highlights as we proceed. So let's look at this first piece. What is Jesus saying? What's Mark 13 all about? And I believe that there are two keys that will help us interpret what Jesus is saying in Mark 13. The first is that Jesus addresses two questions for the disciples. You see, right off the bat in Mark 13, they ask two questions. The first question that you kind of get a hint at is they're walking out of the temple because if you think back to where we've been with Mark 11 and 12, Jesus has been in the temple. He cleanses the temple. He talks about the temple, you know. And so all this action happens at the temple where they're finally going to leave it for the last time, never to return to the temple again. And Jesus is walking with his disciples and they're now sitting at the Mount of Olives. So this is called the Olivet Discourse. And in there, the disciples are like, Jesus, look at that amazing building, which would have been amazing. The stones were roughly like 40 feet each, okay? They say that you couldn't look at it directly when you were approaching Jerusalem because it was so gold-plated that the sun would blind you reflecting off of it. And what wasn't gold-plated was washed pure white. So it looked like snow-capped mountains in the distance. So it's this unbelievable source, but it's also this super important place that anchors all of their lives, not just their religious life, but like what it meant to be a man was kind of tied up with like the culture of the temple. What it meant to be a good mom or a good wife, right? What it meant for you as an individual was in many ways tied to the culture of this temple and everything that revolved around it. And they're looking at it and they're amazed. And I just love the scene because they're like, Jesus, isn't it beautiful? And Jesus kind of like, drifts off like, yeah, but it's going to be totally destroyed. And you're like, come on, Jesus. We were just enjoying a sight, and yet you're going to launch into the end of the world speech right now? Like, this is beautiful and amazing. Can't we just enjoy this? And you're going to see they're like, 
Okay, well, if it is the end of the world, like, when's that going to happen? He says, not one stone will be left standing upon another. So they ask what in their minds might have been one question, but Jesus breaks into two questions. Jesus answers them. The first question is, when will these things happen? So, like, these things is an important word, right? But when will these things happen? When's the temple actually going to be destroyed? And then the second question that Jesus answers is, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So, that refers to the second coming of Jesus. Now, you may say, hold on, I'm looking at Mark 13, and I don't quite see that. Where is it? Where is that here in the Bible? Well, what I would say is if you were to look at the Gospel of Matthew 24.3, that makes it even more plain. It says, he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So again, you can see in their minds, they're like, all right, so the temple's going to be destroyed. That'll be like the end of the world, right? And that'll be, you'll come again, and all these things will, will be fulfilled. Is that right, Jesus? And Jesus is going to break those questions apart. He's going to address each one differently. And that's why you have this complex chart on the top of your handout. It's actually not that complex. Because ultimately, what I think we can know from the Bible about the future really comes down to kind of two big events. And that is, Jesus is going to talk about these things, which is our second key to interpreting this passage. That phrase, these things, refers to when the temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. And then he's going to go later to break that into that second question and discuss not the these things, but the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. So he's going to answer them separately. But here's why. Here's why. It's because, obviously, for them in their mind, the importance of the temple would have felt like the end of the world. And Jesus is just kind of going to give them one after the other of how these things are going to happen. So here's how you would look at this then. If there's kind of three major events here, or you could say, if you look at the part of the box, there's four kind of major time periods. The, f the time period that Jesus is mostly going to be talking about is going to be between his first coming, that is his birth, death, resurrection, which is about 5 BC to around AD 33, right? And then his second coming. And guess when the date of the second coming is? Well, he told us in Mark 13, no one knows. All right, so unfortunately, no groundbreaking prophecies here for me this morning on the date of the second coming. I think Jesus was pretty clear, no one knows, okay? Well, where does that leave us then? So verses 5 through 13, Jesus is going to answer, hey guys, here's what it's going to be like between my first coming, when I leave you, and then my second coming. And he walks them through. It's going to be... Jesus says to them, See, no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. Right? So right there, that the end. The end there is referring to when Jesus comes back. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. And these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And you see that, that analogy, right? The birth pains. These are the contractions that are happening. It's, you'll know it's coming, but, you know, you can't start calculating, like, distance between contractions. You know, if it's down, you start timing them, and that's how you kind of know when, when, you know, mom's ready to go, right? It's not going to be like that, but it's going to, you're going to feel the pain of these things getting ready to give way to new life. And so then he says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is giving them here a picture, a general picture of here's what life is going to be like between my coming, my first coming, what we would call the first advent, and Jesus' second advent. This is generally what it's going to be like, trials and tribulations. You should go ahead and expect that this is what it's going to be like. Because, of course, these are all the things that Jesus would experience. These are all the things that Jesus would step into, being dragged before governors, hated by all And yet, why would he do it? Of course, he would do it so that you could be reconciled back to God. He would endure all of these things even before his disciples would have to endure them, though they're starting to get a little taste of it around him now. He would endure all of these things in the next few chapters because that was the only way to get us back and help us connect with God again. So, you may be thinking, well, hold on, what about verse 10? Because verse 10 says the gospel has to be preached to all nations before he can come back. So is Jesus right now kind of being held hostage by the church? And like, if we want to delay Jesus coming back, let's just like slow walk the evangelism world, sharing the gospel thing. I don't think that's the case. Because the, the idea here is that the gospel would go out. Christianity wouldn't just be this small Jewish sect of a religion, but it would actually become worldwide. Recently, I was asked by, by a student, a college student, when did Christianity go worldwide? Was it in like the Middle Ages? Is that when it kind of became a worldwide thing? And it's like, oh, no, no, no. It got worldwide almost immediately because this is the outline for the book of Acts. Acts 1 says the gospel will be preached in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, you could almost say it happens here as the start of when it goes worldwide because the gospel starts being communicated in all the different languages of the people who were there visiting Jerusalem. And then, of course, Acts chapter 28, we see, you know, Apostle Paul in Rome now sharing the gospel with, with governors and eventually, you know, the highest courts in the land. And so this idea that we can hold Jesus hostage, he can't actually come back at any time, is a bit of a misunderstanding, right? So... Then we get into this next little time period from verses 14 to 23. And here, Jesus is talking about a specific time. We would put the year at 70 AD, the range there, when the the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. 
And here's what he says. Maybe you have this awesome heading in your Bible that says the abomination of desolation or something involving desecration. Where he's, what he says. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he not ought to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back or take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. All right. So you just saw that key word that I reminded you of earlier. All these things. I've told you about all these things. So he's talking about these things, which is getting back to the disciples' original question. When will these things happen? So he's talking about the destruction of the temple specifically, which is a time period within those inter-advent, right, between the first and the second advent of Jesus. Those are the two big time horizons. And Jesus is saying there's going to be a, tr a tribulation that happens. You're like, hold on, though. What about like the Antichrist and the rapture and all that other stuff? We don't see that here. Jesus actually gives us a pretty simple way of understanding how the future is going to play out. And then he gives us, he's basically, I'm going to come back again and finish the job of redemption. But there's going to be general trials and tribulations. It's not going to be great. You know, like you're going to, it's going to be hard. So he's putting them on guard. He's warning them. He's going to help them understand why isn't life just easy? I mean, we're Christians. Why isn't life easy if we're believing the right things? But then on top of that, he does give them insight into a specific event that is going to happen. And this is why, where we get the allusion to the book of Daniel with this title, the abomination of desolation, right? What this is getting at, is a quotation from the book of Daniel, and it could be referring to either Titus, the Roman general, who comes in and literally makes sure there is not one stone left upon another in the temple. They raise it to the ground. Or it could also be referring to before that, the reason Titus rolled in, is the zealots who went into the temple and desecrated it. Or it could be both. But either way, we know this prophecy came true in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And this is actually why there's a lot of people who might say, well, the, the Gospels could not have been written before 70 AD because there's no way they could have predicted the temple would be destroyed. To which, of course, we would say, I mean, not, I mean, if you come back from the dead, I think we'll also give you a pass on like, yeah, you can probably turn water into wine and predict the future. So this gets back to that. But then he's going to switch course now. Okay, so we live in this time period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And we're told to expect general trials, tribulations. And then Jesus warned his disciples of a specific trial and tribulation that actually they were able to flee. Because, I mean, he's not referring to the second coming there because he's like, don't get your stuff. I mean, why would you want to go back for your stuff if Jesus is coming back? 
obviously the idea is, is you're going to be involved in a, in a harder life at this time. And what we actually read from history is that a lot of Christians actually were able to flee because they were on guard for this event specifically to happen. So Jesus then goes on, though, to answer their second question now in verses 24 to 27. This is when he refers to that second big point of his second coming. Because he says now in verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, so referring to not just the general tribulation, but the specific tribulation of the temple being desecrated, he says, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And these are the pictures I'm excited to see what kids draw about, okay? Because this is now the picture of the second coming, Jesus coming in clouds with power and glory. So, What's that going to be like, right? What are we told here? What do we should expect? Well, again, after that, tribulation refers to the temple. But after tells us nothing about how long, okay? Let me give you an example of how we might talk about this, right? So on January 22nd, we are going to have our 11th anniversary celebration. And then after that, we'll celebrate our next anniversary. And you're like, well, like... uh, like on Monday or like the next year. Well, obviously you guys know anniversaries once a year, so we would celebrate 12 the next year, right? And, and so on it would go. Or we would say, you know, here's what we're going to do now, and then here's what's going to happen. To give you an idea of, of how this works out, right? If you look into the sky and you see the few stars we can see here in our city, right? They kind of look close together, right, from our vantage point, And yet we know they are light years apart from each other. And so, too, when Jesus helps us look into the future, it's like, hey, here's this tribulation. The temple's going to be destroyed. And then, well, after that, he's going to come back. But you see, the after gives us nothing about the time, how long. And you're like, well, hold on, though, because Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This generation will not pass away. Wasn't it supposed to happen in their lifetime? Wasn't Jesus wrong? This is where we get into verses 28 through 31. Well, here Jesus is referring back again. This is why I gave you a handout. Jesus is referring not to the second coming, but to the temple, because again, he's referring to these things. So if we read, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, puts out its leaf, you know that summer is near. See also that when you see these things, that phrase, these things, refers to the temple being destroyed. When you see the temple being destroyed, you know that it's near, at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take a place. That is, this will happen in your lifetimes. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words. Now, what's the point of that? Well, he's now getting into, look, you can trust what I'm saying. But not only that, you can trust in me that all these general trials and tribulations you can trust in me. And so then when he brings it back to is now the time period that we live in, verses 32 through 37. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the Son of Man. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be on guard and keep awake 
And he actually repeats those phrases, on guard, keep awake, multiple times throughout this. Okay, so the timeline here, not drawn to scale, as you can imagine. No one knows the coming. And actually, the chart is pretty simple. We know that Jesus came, and we know that he's coming back, and we know that he predicted the temple of Jerusalem would be destroyed. That's all we need to know. That's all we get to know. And that's what we know. Okay, so questions can be sent to jeff at newlifeirvine.org, all right? And all the charts that you'd want to draw can be sent there as well. Okay, so that's what Jesus is saying. He's, look, this is what you can expect. Why does he say this? Why have we just stood here on the first Sunday of the year? The first Sunday of the year, we could have talked about anything. Why would we talk about this? How does this help anyone today? What good is it to know something that will happen, but not know when it will happen? What, what, what good is that? You know, is the idea here like, hey, Jesus is coming back, and so you need to think about the long-term good of Jesus coming back and overcome the short-term pain of living the way he wants you to live. So break those bad habits, kill those secret sins, right? Brush up your act. He could come back at any moment. And do you really want him to catch you doing that? You want to catch him doing this? Right? Is that the idea here? Is that how God's going to help change us and help us now and just make us more afraid? Maybe you can tell by the way I'm talking about it that I don't think that's it. I actually do think Jesus wants to help us. And when I think about why would it be good to know something's going to happen, but not know when it's going to happen, I have a big illustration for you, okay? So now's the time to think about the coffee you can't drink in the sanctuary here, okay? So the illustration is basically of archery because archers will use what's called a surprise release where they will know something's going to happen, but not when it's going to happen, to help them improve their aim. So in archery, right, you have three things to focus on. You aim at the target, right? You draw the bow, all this tension you're under, but you also have to stay relaxed and release. And what happens to archers, even at the Olympic level, is this thing called target panic. Where you aim and you draw, but you flinch. Other sports call it the yips. Okay, so in baseball, right, a pitcher might have the yips, or or specific golf, right, you get the yips. And they're actually fascinated as whether this is psychological or neurological or both, because they can see how this impacts a person. And target panic is something archers will never talk about because you can't talk about it because then you might be real. Okay? So what, what these release aids will do is take out that third thing to focus on, which is the release. So all they have to focus on is the aim and the draw. Surprise release aids, and there's various kinds, surprise releases are so helpful and help archers improve so much and are used so widely to help you improve, it's actually not allowed in the Olympics. They want to make it harder. So all you have to do is focus on the aim and the draw. 
balance that tension, right? Of flexing just the right muscles, but also being relaxed so that you can aim and focus and have a clear head. And you only have to hold those two things in your mind. You don't have to think about the release. Because when you think about the release, you flinch. You might flinch up, right, and send it soaring off to the side, totally miss the target. You flinch because you're so focused on the release. And what Jesus, I think, gives us the aid is a surprise release. So we don't have to focus on it. Because if we focus on the release, right? Notice he gives us in this text two things to focus on and one thing not to focus on. He says, I want you to be on guard three times. Be on guard, be on guard, be on guard. I want you to stay awake three times. Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. But on top of that, do not be alarmed. Do not be anxious. Do not believe false teaching. Do not be led astray. Do not be overly consumed with searching for signs when I'm come back. No one knows. It's a surprise release. All you have to focus on is the aim and the draw. The aim and the draw. And so I think this helps us avoid target panic. Because if we are overly focused on when it's going to happen, we can miss the target. So we can miss by being overly focused. This is ultimately a theology of escape mentality. Let's look at the signs. Here's what's happening. Okay, there's Putin and Russia, and so he's probably the abomination right now. And like, well, I guess if this happens, and then what are the current events in the Middle East? And like, you know, it becomes a hobby, and you've got a cork board with string going everywhere. And, and you say, no, 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 no one knows. And I don't want you to focus on that. Because if the idea there is to focus on when he's coming back, if you actually knew the date, you would just be like, great, not going to work tomorrow. Okay, some of you, some of you look old enough like you might have the memory of Y2K. I know, that's just sick flattery. Okay, kids, you can ask your parents about this later. This would be a fun lunch discussion or maybe fun post-nap discussion. All right, Y2K, this is this big thing, end of the world. Can the computers keep up and can they make the day happen again? And if you want to know the technical stuff, go to Michael Kong, head of our media team. He read the scriptures this morning. He can tell you all about the computer glitches they were worried about for Y2K. But they had, you know, there are people like quitting their jobs and like, I'm just not going to get ready for my exams. Like everything was like, if you actually knew when the world was happening, you'd totally disengage. You would flinch and you'd miss the target. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to know when it's going to happen. I just want you to draw and aim. Draw and aim. Be on guard. Stay awake. Don't focus on the release. Don't focus on the release. Because notice, how is Jesus going to come back? Well, it says he's coming in the clouds. Not through the clouds. He's not going to teleport down or open the portal in the sky. All that. The idea here is that he's bringing back the glory of God that we'd lost. In the Garden of Eden, they had the presence of God in paradise. And when humanity turned its back on God, when we lost that connection, when we lost that access, the ways it would come back in the Old Testament is, is in a cloud. And so when it comes back in a cloud, it liberates the captives who are slaves in Egypt and brings them to a new paradise. When it comes into the temple, it comes in this glory cloud. When Jesus was transfigured earlier in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 9, there was the cloud of his glory shining, and Jesus is going to bring the glory of God 
This is why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven will finally break in fully. That means what we do here and now is actually counting towards that. It's not get everyone off the boat because the ship's going down. No, it's heaven is breaking into this world now. And so we are engaged with this world, right? I love the way Ed Clowney says it, is that Jesus promises what he also demands. Jesus demands total allegiance, body, and soul, but Jesus promises total renewal and redemption, body, and soul. And we get to take part in that here and now. And it actually does count. It does, in the famous words of the movie Gladiator, it does echo into eternity. But not only can we miss the target by being way too focused on when it will happen, we can miss the target by being way too focused on trying to make it happen. All right, I won't spend a lot of time here, but, you know, because the worst of this is like the Christian nationalist flags that you see attacking the Capitol, right? Or people devising schemes. If we do this, we can force Jesus' second coming. I, I don't know anyone in here who's like that, but send me a blog post if you have one. Instead, where I see us maybe falling into this trap of trying to, to over make it happen is in areas where we might be bitter or angered and don't want to forgive. And in many ways, we're saying that justice that's supposed to come, I'm going to hold on to that now. And so we can miss the mark by forcing it. These are people who want to be rulers for Jesus instead of servants for Jesus. But Jesus told us in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus is coming back. That's the certainty. That's the hope. That's the promise. It's good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. But if we're overly focused on the when, we'll miss the target. If we try and what archers call punch it, right? So when you flinch, you, you punch at the target. We try to force it. We will totally miss the target. This is the power to love our enemies, as we trust Jesus is coming back and will make all things right. Jesus is coming back. But my, I'm guilty of all of these, but another one I see in my life is not aiming at this target at all. So I'm just not even concerned about the release because I don't really buy into it, you know? It's like the Lakers winning the finals this year. It's not happening this year. So we're good. It's, it's not even aiming. And that's what we have to ask ourselves, is what we're aiming at matter? That's why Jesus talks about this the apocalyptic stuff, puts us on guard. He's saying, look, your life can matter, but you can also waste it. So what are you aiming at? The way C.S. Lewis talks about this is, is he's like, look, we should all be kind of like that 70-year-old man. Like, don't be making plans for stuff that's going to take another 20 years, you know, but don't be consumed with it all the time, but don't ever not take it into account. It's kind of a balance. But you know there's going to be an end, but you can't be consumed with when it will happen. So what should we do? Where should we put our focus and our effort? And Jesus gives these two commands. Be on guard and stay awake. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, here's where we'll close. I think ultimately we do this because you recognize that this be on guard, stay awake 
what Jesus has done here, calling us right, the elect, gathering us, making us his people, giving us the promise that one day the presence of God will bring us, his people, into paradise forever. And that that will happen. It's a guarantee. We don't know when, but it will happen. That begins to shape our identity. And so now being on guard is not just looking for the things that will make God unhappy if he pops in one day. But being on guard is making sure to protect our own joy, to fight against the things that distract us from what we should really be aiming at in this life. And staying awake is this idea of keeping in front of us the things that are going to help keep us going. So it's not just fighting the distractions and the lesser things that we might aim at in this world, but it's aiming at the right things. But we do it not with just all tension, remember? Because you have to be tense and relaxed. You've got to balance the two. And we do that because when you think about this phrase, stay awake, Jesus is actually going to ask his disciples to stay awake with him very shortly in the gospel. We'll come to a point where they'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus will say, will you guys stay awake with me? Will you watch with me? Will you pray with me? Will you support me? Will you help me? And what will they do? They will fall asleep. But Jesus will stay awake. And I was like, guys, can you stay awake? And they'll fall asleep again. And the, the point of this here is that when we read this apocalyptic literature, we don't have to be terrified. Don't get me wrong. If, if like doing something, you're like, whoa, I don't want God catching me doing this. Well, he can already see you, okay, right? So if that does help you flee temptations and sin, take it. Take all the motivation you can. But don't leave the best motivation on the table, and that is the motivation that he stayed awake for you, that he is calling you. He has a hope and a future and a plan for you, and that this darkness that is going to come, this earth-shattering event that's going to happen that leads to judgment will not be judgment for you, but instead it will be glory coming into your life fully and completely. And so you get to aim at that glory now. You get to just focus on the pull, the draw, and the aim, being on guard and staying awake. And that's actually exactly what this supper helps us do. That's exactly why we turn now to the Lord's Supper, to help us aim at the future and strengthen us here and now. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us with these things. You would help us to be on guard and to stay awake because you stayed awake for us. You faced the darkness for us. This earth-shattering reality you faced for us. And so help us now to protect our own identities. Help us, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, that in all distress and persecution with uplifted head, to confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. And help us to be agents of removing that curse in our city, in our nation, in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.